My message today is praise be to God for spiritual blessings in Christ. Uh, Ephesus was a principal city in Asia Minor in a place of great spiritual darkness and idolatry. In fact, it was the home of the Temple Artemis, one of the seven ancient wonders of the world. It was 350 by 180 feet, so it was pretty substantial. It is in this city that God poured out His Spirit through the preaching of Paul and his missionary band to the effect that it hurt the idol trade so badly that the uh, silversmiths got together, those that made the shrines to Artemis, and started a riot in Ephesus. But it's in that very city where God called out so many people to be a light of the gospel in the midst of the darkness. And that should be great encouragement to us as we think about our day and the darkness that is in our day. That God can move at any time and He will always save His own people no matter how dark it is to the praise of His own glory. Now the first three chapters of the book of Ephesians are loaded with indicatives. That means statements of fact. Statements of fact about who we were and statements of fact of who we are in Christ if we know Him. There's only one command in the first three chapters of the book of Ephesians, and that is to remember. To remember where we came from and that we were saved by the grace of God. In the first three chapters, you could sum it up as who we are in Christ by the grace of God. And the second three chapters, how we are to live our lives in light of who we are in Christ. And so, um, our passage today, Ephesians 1, 3 through 14, teach us to praise God and live lives in light of the truth that He has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in Christ in the heavenly places to the praise of His glory. As we look at our passage today, we will see that it covers uh, God the Father's plan of election in eternity past, our present redemption that we have in Christ, and our future inheritance that we have through the sealing of the Holy Spirit. So all three members of the Trinity are seen affecting God's purpose to unite all things in Christ. To most people, the Great Depression of the 30s has been forgotten in the wave of prosperity that followed. But it was out of these hard times, however, there came a story which has a strange ending, yet teaches us a powerful lesson. When a timid old lady approached the first ex that she saw in the insurance office in Minneapolis, she was asked what she wanted. With trembling hands, she took out of her well-worn purse a policy and explained regretfully that she was unable to meet the current premium. She explained that it was hard for her to get to work and what little she did get was hardly enough to clothe, feed her, and put a roof over her head. After quick investigation, the clerk recognized that the policy was very valuable. He warned the lady that she was making an unwise step to stop the payment. Did not her husband have anything to say? It was a policy made out to her benefit, he explained. And she said... My husband, oh, he's been dead three years. Immediately, the company officials went into action. They soon discovered that she was indeed telling the truth. What she didn't understand was that policy was for her, that policy was her husband's and that she was the beneficiary at his death. They were thus obligated to refund the overpaid premiums plus the full amount 
for which the husband had insured his life in her favor. The money was sufficient to keep her in comfort the rest of her life. A lot of times we do not realize the storehouse of God's blessings that we have in Jesus Christ. And that we are allowed to go into that storehouse at any time and plumb the depths of all that we have in Christ. And that brings us to our first point today. God the Father's plan of election in Christ is cause for great praise to Him. Look at verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. All praise is due to God the Father. Why? Because He has blessed us, not just with a few spiritual blessings, but with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Now, that, we're not preaching the prosperity gospel here. That doesn't mean we don't have trials and we have tribulations, but that we have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Um, Alexander McLaren wrote this about that. We may have as much of God as we will, Christ puts the key of the treasure chamber into our hand, and he bids us to come and take all that we want. If a man is admitted into that bullion vault of the bank and is told to help himself and he comes out with one cent, whose fault is it that he is poor? Whose fault is it if we're poor? You know, we have all the riches of Christ in his word. We can go into that storehouse and help ourselves every day and feast upon all his precious promises. He has a banquet table laid before us. It's kind of like Mephibosheth, you know. He said, I'm a dead dog of a man. He, was a, he, was, he came before David as if he wasn't worthy. And David seated him at his table to eat at the king's table. And that's what we have. We're able to sit at the king's table and take in all the precious promises of the glory of God. But how many times do we feast on bologna sandwiches? You know, Oscar Meyer, instead of all that we have, all that we have in Christ. So where are these blessings? Well, it says that they are in the heavenly places. You know, we were separated from Christ, kicked out of the presence of God in the garden, and now, we have, if we were in Christ, we have all the spiritual blessings that we could have in Christ in the heavenly places. I remember as a young believer reading these very verses over and over again because I just couldn't believe it. If then you've been raised with Christ, it's Colossians 3, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on things of the earth. For you have died and your life is hidden in Christ and God. When Christ, is your, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. How often do we seek the things above? You know, we turn on the news and we see how bad it is. And we start complaining. We start cursing the darkness. How could they be so evil? Forgetting that we were one time in their position. Forgetting that we cannot expect non-believers to act like, not, uh, like believers. And so, you know, we need to be a light to the world instead of complaining. We need to love the lost and tell them the good news that they too can be, enter into all these glorious blessings in Christ. So these heavenly places, where are they? Well, they're the realm to which Christ was exalted through his resurrection power. 
Think about it. We were kicked out of the presence of God under the sentence of death, and now we have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Look, look down just a little bit in chapter 1 to verses 8 through 21. Now Paul here is praying that these very believers will understand the blessings that we're going through today, that they'll under, get a hold of them and understand them. Um, because I guess they probably were having a hard time understanding them too. So Ephesians 1, beginning to read at 18, having the eyes of their hearts enlightened, that they may know the hope to which you have been called. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe according to the working of his great might? that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. And where did he seat him? In heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but in the age to come. The age to come. That's That's pretty glorious truth, isn't it? But guess what? Christ isn't there alone. Chapter 2 tells us that he took all his people with him. Took all his people with him. Beginning to read in verse 4 of chapter 2. But God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. You notice we're united with Christ there. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. I mean, these blessings that we have, they telescope into eternity future. It's like the mountain peaks of the glory of God. We'll be climbing the mountain peaks of the glory of God for a thousand years. And when we get to the top of those mountain peaks, what will we see? We'll see more mountain peaks of the glory of God. And then we'll climb those mountain peaks for a million years. And what will we see? We will see more mountain peaks of the glory of God. And then we'll climb those mountain peaks for a trillion years. And what will we see? More mountain peaks of the glory of God. God in His Son, Jesus Christ, is an inexhaustible source of life and joy. That's why it's called eternal life. Because we can't exhaust it. We'll be with Him for an eternity feasting at his table, and we will never exhaust all that we have in Christ. This is so glorious. No wonder we should live our lives in light of all these precious promises. So how has our God and Father blessed us with every spiritual blessing? Well, he's done that through Christ. He's done that through our union with Christ. In our text today, it says in Christ two times. It says in Him, speaking of Christ, five times. And it says through Jesus Christ one time. It says in Christ 89 times throughout the rest of the New Testament. Every single blessing, everything we have is all In Christ. And so that's how we have these precious blessings through our union with Christ. You know where that began? Well, when we believed, and it's pictured in baptism, when we're seen as dying with Christ and raised up to walk in newness of life. We're united with Christ in his death and we're raised in a life like his to enjoy. All these blessings for eternity. It's such precious truth. 
So what are these blessings that we have in Christ? Well, look at verse 4, the first part of verse 4. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. He chose us before we were even born. However, we do realize this in real life in this world. This is not looking down the corridors of time and seeing our action. That's what I used to believe. Uh, It's not that. He chose us before we chose him. However, we really do choose him, but it's only because he chose us first. Now, this sometimes strikes at our pride as we want to say we did it. That we did the choosing on our own. I used to think that. I'm sorry if that bothers you, (laughs) that he chose you. But think about what a blessing that is. It is God who is doing the blessing here, not us. Your text says he's blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing. So out of many others in the world... He chose you out for himself. I mean, think about that. Why didn't your next-door neighbor choose Christ? Why did you grow up in a Christian family and hear the gospel all your life? I mean, you look back at your life, and you'll see that God worked the circumstances, whether you grew up in a Christian home or didn't grow up in a Christian home, to bring you to himself. I mean, he set his love on you. He, he opened the eyes of a blind person and blessed you with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. I mean, this word here, to choose, um, it, means, it means to make a choice in accordance with significant preference. To select someone or something for oneself. In fact, it is used in Luke 9.35 where God says this of the Son. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my Son, my chosen one. Listen to Him. And then John 15.16. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go bear fruit And that your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give to you. And then John 15, 19. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of this world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Both sides of the equation are seen in Acts 13, 48. Paul had been preaching to the Jews And they're hardening their hearts. And now he's saying, I'm going to the Gentiles. And Acts 13, 48, it says this. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed, or could say ordained, to eternal life, believed. I mean, who's doing the appointing here? Who's doing the ordaining here? It's not us. It's God. And who's doing the believing here? Well, it's us. We're really putting our faith in Christ. But it's because God ordained it. And so, why did he choose us then? I mean, how many times? Do you ever ask yourself, why me, God? I know I do. Especially when I'm struggling with something. Lord, why why would you save a person like me? But it just it magnifies His grace. Now, we shouldn't sin so grace will abound. But it does abound. Greater in all, than all of our sin. So why has He chose us in Him? That we should be holy and blameless before Him. How many here are seen as holy by God? Anybody here seen as holy by God? All right. So some people are reading their Bibles. No, just kidding. Um, I'm sure you all do. You're just, you know, 
makes you nervous. Um, and how many here are being made holy? Yeah, same guys. Yeah. We're, so we're seen as holy and we're being made holy. Isn't that something? Listen, um, Hebrews 10, 14, listen to what it says. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time, perfected past tense, holy, those who are being sanctified. Those are presently being sanctified. So we're seen as holy, but we're also being made holy. That's good news, isn't it? I'm glad God sees me as holy, even though I'm not there yet, aren't you? It's so encouraging that he sees the righteousness of Christ instead of our own righteousness. You see, you know, if Jesus, all he had to do was die on the cross, he could have done that as a little baby, you know. But he, he, he lived a life, a real life. He was tempted in all ways like you and me, yet without sin. Where we failed to obey God, Jesus perfectly obeyed God. And he achieved the perfect life that we could not achieve. And that perfect life is seen as our life, even though we didn't live it. And our sin is imputed. It's charged to him. And his perfect life is transferred to our account, and we're seen as having his righteousness, even though we're still being transformed into the very image of Christ in our lives. It's such glorious truth. So, he chose us. Why did he choose us? Well, he chose us to be holy and blameless before him. Um, but he predestined us also. Not only did he choose us, but in love, he predestined us. I'm going to put in love with verse 5. In love, he, he predestined us. Well, what does that mean? Well, it means that he determined beforehand that he would predestine us to adoption as sons. That's what the word means, to decide upon beforehand, to predetermine. It's the same word used in Acts uh, 4, 26-28. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were against, gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Same word here. So, you know, when I was uh, a young evangelist and I was going to Washington Bible College, I used to argue with my professors, and I'd make arguments, let's put it that way, and say, oh, you know, it's free will. Uh, God looked down the corridor's time. I would, say, I would say all those things. And then I was asked, asked to teach the book of Romans to the teenagers. And, and I didn't like Romans 9 too much, but um, I couldn't just skip Romans 9. <laughs> so I... I, uh, I taught Romans 9 to the teenagers, and um, I found myself that I was arguing with Scripture, with the Apostle Paul. And I thought, I can't be doing this. I can't be arguing with the Apostle Paul. This is, this is holy Scripture. And so I was, you know, I, I came to see the doctrines of grace. Now, I was afraid of that before um, I believed them because, one, I was afraid as an evangelist God wouldn't need me. Well, he doesn't, does he? Um, and the second thing is what I was afraid of is that I would lose my zeal for my calling. I love preaching the gospel. And I didn't want to lose that zeal that I had for preaching the gospel. But you know what happened, in fact? Well... 
The first thing is, is that I saw that it's all dependent upon God. And that set me free to trust him for the conversion of people. I never forget the first day that I came to believe these doctrines, standing on the University of Maryland with a newfound boldness in Christ to preach his word, trusting him that he's the one that's going to do the converting. I mean, it, when I read Jacob I have loved, Esau I have hated, all these passages, I was like, I'm done. And, uh, you know, I came to see that. So what did he predestine us for? Well, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. You know, we're in a new family. I mean, we were in the cursed family of Adam under the sentence of death. I remember walking into 4C Bible Church and thinking, these people know why they sing. (laughs) You know, I mean, I could just see Christ in them. They were a, a, a city shining on the hill. And I, I, I hated my life by this time. You know, I hated it. I was a slave to sin. And Pastor Small up there preaching that we're slaves to sin from Romans chapter 6. And I thought, man, I'm a slave. I'm a slave. And I walked out of that room feeling the weight of condemnation, feeling doomed. But I kept listening to Small, Pastor Small. I kept reading the Word, and I saw the grace of God. And and that set me free, the cross of Christ, the grace of God. And I was added to that family, adopted into the family of God. Each and every one of you who have repented and put your faith in Christ, you have been adopted out of the cursed family of the first Adam into the family of the second Adam, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, Jesus Christ. You know, I didn't know what life was about before Christ. A party, you know, all these silly things. You know, we think we have an identity crisis now. Well, we had an identity crisis back then, too. I didn't know who I truly was until I was in Christ, right? We do have a big identity crisis. And right now, people need to hear about they can have an identity in Jesus Christ and be set free. So instead of getting upset with how everything's coming apart in America, look at it as an opportunity to bring the love and grace of God to broken and lost people. Tell them they can be adopted into the family of God. We feel the love of the brothers and sisters, as I've already noted here. In fact, I know when we first came here, people that I didn't even know helped me move into my house. You know, I, and what we're going through, I just don't know how people go through trials and tribulations without the body of Christ without the family of God that we are adopted into. Listen to this, Hebrews 2.10, and I know I preached on this a few years back, but um, for it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons, that's you and me, male and female, to glory, should make the founder of their salvation Perfect through suffering. There it is, Christ living that perfect life on our behalf. For he who sanctifies and those who sanctify or being sanctified all have one source. And listen to this. That is why he's not ashamed to call them brothers. Jesus Christ is not ashamed to call us brothers. He sings of God's name in the midst of the congregation. He's not ashamed to call us brothers. This is an amazing thing. Yeah, I mean, I have to pinch myself and say, this is true. All that we have in Christ. 
And for what reason has he done all this? To the praise of his glorious grace. Oh, the amazing grace of God. The amazing grace of God. It overflows to us in love. Which he has blessed us in the beloved. You know, that father said of the son, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. In whom I am well pleased. We're called beloved. And guess what? Because we're in Christ, he's well pleased. He's well pleased. I don't know how many of you suffer or struggle with sin. I tend to be a bit introspective and I figured out that I was being a little self-centered. You can be self-centered like, oh, I'm looking at my sin, you know. Um, But I had to realize that God's well pleased because he sees, sees us in Jesus Christ. Think about that. Maybe you struggle with sin like that. I want you to know if you're in Christ, God is well pleased because of Christ's work on the cross. And he's not done with you yet. He's transforming you to be like his son. And sometimes that process of sanctification doesn't feel good as God's pointing out our sin and as we're suffering trials and tribulations. But God is working everything to make you like him. So don't be discouraged. He who began a good work in you is faithful to complete it to the day of Christ Jesus. If he saved you while you were a sinner, he's not going to let you go now that he saved you, right? I mean, he already saved you at the worst you could be. He's not going to let you go. It's gonna, you're going to be perfected in Christ. We all with unveiled face are beholding the glory of the Lord and we're being transformed into the same image. The same image of who? The image of Christ. From one degree of glory to another. So you're just in a stage of a degree of glory right now. Even though you're struggling, he's going to transform you to that next degree of glory. Don't be discouraged, brothers and sisters. He hasn't finished the work that he started in you. He's going to finish it. Okay, our second point. God's work of redemption in Christ is cause to praise him is cause to praise Him. Look at Ephesians uh, 1.7. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. God's grace and forgiveness are magnified when we see that we were slaves. When we see the picture of our former slavery to sin and what he has rescued us from. In chapters 2, 1 through 3, it says, We were dead in our trespasses and sins. But we were we were dead, but we were walking dead people, following the course of this world, following the devil. And we were under God's wrath. This is the realm from which he has redeemed us. This is the condition that we were in. I think he tells us about all these spiritual blessings before we see this dark picture so we won't be so discouraged. But of course, then there's that little phrase, but God, right? Being rich in mercy, he made us alive. We were dead and he made us alive and he set us free. This word redemption carries the idea of release from slavery. The Exodus is the Old Testament example. As the Israelites were slaved from the plague of death by the blood over the doorposts and delivered out of slavery in Egypt. Just like that, we are saved and forgiven by the blood of of his cross, 
and set free from the bondage of sin. And we're seen as blameless. It was there at the cross that God's justice that we deserve was satisfied against sin. You know, I often go through the law with students on the university, and it stops their mouths, just like it stops all of our our mouths. But to tell them about the wonderful grace of God that Jesus stood in our place even though we failed, and he satisfied God's justice against us in his cross. And that those who are in him, are they no longer have to worry because that, that justice has been satisfied. Isn't this encouraging this morning? Everything we have, we have in Christ. And he made it all happen through the cross. Through the cross. The great, greater reality is forgiveness of trespasses and freedom from the bondage of sin and the guilt of sin. We're free from the guilt of sin according to the riches of his grace, which he, he lavished on. He's not stingy with his grace. He lavishes it upon us. And he does that with all wisdom and insight. I mean, he has the perfect plan. This is our redemption that we experience here in this world. And now he's going to transition from the present to the future in the text. You know, he had his plan in eternity past. Now we have redemption in the here and now as we go through life. And he's going to make a transition here in verses 9 and 10. Making known the mystery of his will according to the purpose which he set forth in Christ. And here it goes. As a plan for the fullness of time, when the times are ripe, to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. And so he's going to unite all things. And that's a big theme in the book of Ephesians. We see we're united with God in Jesus Christ. We see that we're united together, Jew and Gentile, in Jesus Christ. But it doesn't just stop there. It goes all the way to the redemption of all the universe, of all creation. He's going to redeem everything in Christ. This cursed world the place in which Christ was rejected and despised and nailed to a cross, he's coming back to that very same place and he's going to reign. He's going to fulfill the mandate of Genesis to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and to reign. Now, we're going to, be, we're going to multiply through the gospel of Christ in this case, but we're going to reign. We're going to reign... Revelation 5.10 says we shall reign upon the earth. He's going to set free this creation. And he's going to unite it to himself. Paul's letter to Colossians tells us how he united all things. And it's been mentioned. For in him the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven. You see, it's not just us that are redeemed. It's the physical world making peace by the blood of his cross. And this will be fully realized at his second coming. Romans 8 talks about this, beginning to read at verse 18. For I consider that the present sufferings of this time are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing. Literally, the creation is standing up on tiptoes. Standing up on tiptoes, that's what it means. Longing for the revealing of the sons of God. That's you and me. And all the saints of Old Testament history. And all the saints that will believe in the future. 
For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope, that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. You know what's going to happen when the lion lays down with the lamb and the kid plays by the cobra's hole? You see, the premillennial hope was in the Old Testament. It's not just Revelation 20. It was in the Old Testament. He, he uh, continues. For we know the whole creation has been groaning together in pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who are the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we eagerly await the adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. You know, that's the last realm where sin has to be vanquished in our body. That's where we struggle with sin in this world. It's in our flesh, right? That's why we're told to walk by the Spirit and we won't fulfill the desires of the flesh. But He's going to transform these lowly bodies to be like his glorious body. Oh, what a glorious day that that is going to be when we don't have to struggle with sin anymore. I mean, it gets tiresome sometimes because we will be perfected with Christ. We will come back and we will reign with him forever and ever and ever. And then after a thousand years, the rebellion And then they'll be put away, and then the eternal state, and we will be with God in glory for eternity. We have all this to look forward to. But until then, we have the Holy Spirit as a guarantee. We have the Holy Spirit, and that brings us to our next reason to bring, to give praise to God to our God and King. Our point three is God's guaranteed future inheritance in Christ through the sealing of the Holy Spirit, which is cause to praise Him. Which is cause to praise Him. Look at verse 11. In Him we've obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will. All things. So the first thing we see here is that we have obtained an inheritance. And I really believe the first part of this is talking about Jewish believers. You'll see that when we get down. But we're included in it too. So he makes that clear at the end of the passage. But I just want to touch a little bit on that he works all things according to the purpose of his will. Now I know... Um, This has to do specifically here with the whole order of the universe, (laughs) you know. But you know what? He works everything in accordance to the purpose of his will in every individual life in this room, too, which is included in all that redemption. You know, when Carmina got cancer, as I mentioned, it, it did hit us hard. But through this time, I've seen Christ exalted in her. Do you know that suffering is a magnifying glass through which we more clearly see Christ? I used to be like, man, she really needs me to be her spiritual leader. But as I look at her, I'm thinking, wow, look at Christ in her. I wonder if I would react like she is in this, with all this joy and enthusiasm in Christ, with the attitude, no matter what happens, whether I live or die, I have Christ. That's been so encouraging. And I know, I know there's others that are going through cancer in our church and other very hard things. But he's working everything in accordance to his will so that Christ will be more clearly seen in his people whether, whether they're suffering or not. The prosperity gospel can't preach this. We glory in our sufferings, it says in Romans 5. 
right? Because we have a hope where God transforms our character through the trials and tribulations of this life. And so he's working everything in accordance with the counsel of his will so that we who are the first to hope in Christ, I believe that's the Jews, might be to the praise of his glory. Always, he does everything. If you did a study about why God does things, you'll always see it's to the praise of his glory in Scripture. Verse 13, In him we also, when we heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promise, Holy Spirit. That's, I believe that's speaking to us Gentiles. Although we both are sealed with the promise, Holy Spirit. Because it goes on in further chapters to talk about the mystery that we are united with Christ with the Jew, and Christ with the Jews, Jew and Gentile, united in Christ. Sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory, to the praise of his glory. You know, um, As we look forward to that day, the Holy Spirit tells us that we have more in Christ. It's like when you give an engagement ring to your bride. And it's like a pledge. It's like a promise that looks forward to that day when you'll be united. The Holy Spirit is the down payment, the deposit. He gives us power to live in this world. It's like that wedding ring. We look forward to the day when we see Christ. Do you look forward to the day when you see Christ? Or are you so caught up? Are we so caught up in the things of this world that we don't look forward to those things? I mean, the Scripture says it's a purifying oath. Everyone who has this hope, purifies himself as he is pure. We should be looking forward. My mom was looking forward. We need to look forward to that day. It's better than this world. There is nothing better in this world that we could have or experience that is better than being with Christ on that day. Okay, so this seal is the guarantee of our inheritance. Um, In application, how do we apply all this to our lives? Well, first, the first thing is, I mean, it's in the text three times. We should be giving praise to the triune God for all the blessings that we have in Him. My friends, enter into the storehouse of God's blessing every day and plumb all the depths of of the riches of the glory of God that we have in Him and who we are in Him. Do not be like paupers when you are children and heirs of the King of kings and Lord of lords. Do not eat bologna sandwiches when there is a great banquet table in heaven spread with all the glorious, precious promises of the glory of God to the praise of His glory. Live with your eyes fixed on the coming bride when we will be transformed and see Him as He is because we will be like Him. That day is coming more sure than any planned wedding day. And we'll be united with Christ. Another application, and we can't miss this, is the second half of the book of Ephesians. I mean, the... the, You know, the first three chapters tell us who we are in Christ, how blessed we are in Christ. But we're to live our lives in light of who God is and all we have in Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. The application of this is seen in chapters 4 through 6 of this book, where it begins by telling us to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. So one command in the first three chapters... 40 in the second three chapters. And it starts off with live lives worthy of your calling, right? And then it tells us 
how we should walk and how we shouldn't walk. You know, we shouldn't walk like the Gentiles, like we used to walk. Then it instructs us that we are a new community, a church of living stones in which the Spirit of God dwells, and it's a shining light to everyone that's around us that don't have Christ, that they might see Christ and come to Christ. And then it instructs us how to live in light of who we are as husbands and wives, as children to parents, and parents to children, and bosses to workers. And then it instructs us and tells us that we are in a spiritual battle, not a physical battle. That our, re- our battle is not with flesh and blood, right? But it's in the heavenly places. And that we're to walk in the armor of God. So really, the application of today is really found in the second half of the book, really. And I would, I would suggest to meditate on this passage this week. Don't forget about it. When someone says, well, what did you learn this week? Don't say, oh, I can't remember. Maybe if you go home and meditate on it, you will remember what we talked about. But I wouldn't just read that. I'd read the whole book. Do you know this letter was read to the church and probably other churches too as a whole letter? You know, a lot of times we get down and we just want to break down four or five verses, which is good. We should do that. But we don't want to miss the forest for the trees, It's good to know the overall story of the book and then break it down in the smaller bits. You know, you build the frame of the, you lay the foundation and build the framework, then you put it in the drywall, put on the bricks. You know, it's good to have that foundation and see the big picture. So I'm suggesting you read the book this week. I hope you're encouraged this morning that we're blessed with all the precious riches of the glory of God. It's so amazing that he does that for sinners like us. Let's pray. Lord, I, we, we come to you this morning. We're awed by, your, by who you are and how you would stoop down and condescend to this earth and be tempted in all ways like us, but without sin. And Lord, how you lived, how you loved the poor, and you just showed us how to live in you. And thank you for the cross by which we died with you and we've been raised up with you to walk in newness of life. Lord, help us to remember all these precious promises and walk in the Spirit as you are in the Spirit so we don't fulfill the desires of the flesh. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.